0: Welcome to this Uvula Audio Bookcast cast of Smuggler's Reef by John Blaine. Volume 8, Chapter 17, Enter the Police Duke Burroughs was waiting at the hangar when Rick and Scotty got out of the cub. I can see the headlines now, he greeted them with a grin. Young birdmen fly by night, subhead. Get up early to catch worms who break law. Speaking of getting up early, Rick retorted. He pointed to where growing paleness in the east announced the coming of daylight. How'd you know we'd be landing? My house is near here, Duke reminded him. I heard you buzz the field a little while ago, and I knew you must have gotten the call. So I dressed and came over. Hadn't gone to sleep after getting home anyway. Editors of morning papers are night owls, remember? How did it go? Rick reached into the cub and drew out his camera. He held it up triumphantly. "'The evidence is in here,' he said happily. "'We caught him in the act, Duke.' But then he sobered. "'But we're worried,' he told the editor about their misgivings. "'Huh.' Burrows gazed at the night sky reflectively. "'I agree that Marbeck probably wouldn't throw the stuff overboard, but he might straight for port. "'I think we'd better give Captain Douglas a call.' We want state troopers waiting at Creek House when the albatross arrives. Scotty groaned. If they go now, that means we won't get any sleep. You hadn't better plan on going with the troopers, Duke said. They probably prefer to handle things their own way. Besides, it might mean waiting all day. I'd say it was more important for you to get that film developed. I don't suppose you saw the name of the ship Marbeck was getting his stuff from. Oh, I didn't even think about it, Rick confessed. I planned to, and then when the time came, it slipped my mind completely. I was too busy flying the plane and taking pictures. Duke looked at the camera curiously. It's hard to believe you actually got pictures at night. I'm anxious to see them. Me too, Scotty agreed. Well, let's get organized. First of all, how do you plan to get the film developed? There's a lab in New York that gives 24-hour service. They can develop infrared, too. I hate to think how much they're going to charge me, though. Can individual frames of the film be blown up and made into decent pictures? Rick nodded. Well, it'll look a little grainy, but yeah, it can be done. All right. Give me exclusive rights to use the pictures and the paper will pay for them. Let me have the film and the address of the lab. I'll send Jerry to New York with them first thing in the morning. Then we can have them back tomorrow. Is that okay with you? Swell. Good. Let's hop into my car and take a run over to the state police barracks. We'll get Captain Douglas out of bed and you can tell him your story. He'll know how to carry the ball from there. Scotty got the binoculars from the cub. He and Rick staked the plane down and then hurried to the editor's car. The police barracks was just outside of town on the Newark Turnpike. Captain Douglas was in bed, but he got up quickly enough when the sergeant on duty gave him the names of the three visitors. Rick described their nice work while the officer finished dressing. When he had finished, Captain Douglas, a strapping man who had been a Marine officer before retiring and joining the State Force, nodded briskly. Good work, Rick. I want to see that film the minute you know whether your camera worked well enough for evidence. Now, my lads, I've got to get to work. Instead of barging into a creek house with sirens wailing, I just think I'll put a pair of my boys in civilian clothes on the job. One on the waterfront and the other at the bridge. I have a pair of squad cars without insignia or state license plates that will be useful. Both of them are radio equipped. The minute this trawler shows up, we'll know about it and we'll move in on them. I'll ask for a search warrant as soon as I can get someone on the phone to the main office. How does that strike you? Sounds all right. But where do we come in? Rick asked. You don't. Captain Douglas retorted. "'You go home and go to bed. The only thing you could do would be to hang around here all day waiting, because we wouldn't let you go to Seaford and maybe tip off the gang by accident. They must know it was your plane, and they'll be crazy if they don't assume you'll call the police. If no police show up, and you don't either, it may lull their suspicions somewhat. Tell you what.' I'll phone Duke or have the desk man do it. The minute we hear anything, he'll phone you. And with that, the two boys had to be content. Rick ran the rest of the film through his camera, unloaded it, and handed a can of film to Duke Barrows. The editor drove them to the boat landing. With any luck, he said as they got from the car, we may let folks read all about it within a couple of days. See you later, fellas. Although it was scarcely daylight, Mr. and Mrs. Brant were already up and having an early breakfast. Rick knew that it was just that they had worried about Scotty and him, and he felt a little thrill of pride in them. Even though they had worried, they had confidence in him, and so they had let him go. He was glad that he and Scotty always had played square with them, sharing their adventures and discussing their problems. Over breakfast, the boys related the story of their night flight while the Brants listened with interest wasn't bad at all, Rick finished. I did have one tough moment when we landed the first time, because I was a little tense, but the second time was smooth as anything. Uh, glad you went to Ed Douglas, Hartson Brand said approvingly. These kinds of jobs belong to the law, Rick. An amateur can go only so far, and then if he's wise, he calls the police. They had barely finished breakfast when the phone rang. It was Captain Mike. He said he had been standing on first one leg and then the other ever since he had phoned, and would they please tell him what had happened? Scotty obliged with a dramatic report, and Captain Mike exclaimed his delight so loudly that Rick could hear him half the room away. Scotty hung up and grinned. He's going to sort of wander over to that part of town himself, just to keep track of what's going on. I hope he doesn't attract any attention, Rick said. He's too smart for that. Well, what now? To bed to catch up on that sleep we missed? Rick couldn't have slept a wink, and he said as much. He was too wound up. Let's go to Whiteside, he suggested. It's full daylight now, and one of us may as well bring the cub back. I'll do it, Scotty offered. You've been getting all the practice. You're the one who doesn't need it. On the way over by boat, Rick reviewed again the events of the night. Funny that that freighter was heading south he said in the cold light of day his speculation that there might be a whole smuggling ring up and down the coast didn't look very sensible of course she may have reached there before brad showed up and circled while she was waiting we didn't hang around to see if she headed north again after they finished unloading well that could be it scotty agreed probably is listen what happens to the freighter if the police catch brad with the goods i can't say Ordinarily, I would think that the police would call for the Coast Guard to go intercept them, but we're not even sure what the identity of the ship was. Yeah, we missed that, Scotty said. Has it occurred to you that we're going to be the star witnesses if this thing goes to trial? Rick shook his head. Not necessarily. If the state police catch Brad and the Kelsos with the goods, they won't need us for anything. But if they identify the ship that supplied them, well, then they may need us there. Unless it's a foreign ship. What do you mean? Well, they were outside the 12-mile limit. That's the high seas. I'm not up on my international law, but I doubt if the United States can do much about something done by a foreign ship on the high seas. Oh, I never thought of that, Rick admitted. He dropped Scotty out the landing, then turned the launch back to spindrift. Once back in his own room, however, he was too restless to do anything, even to sleep. He walked out to the lab building and sat down on the steps, looking out to sea. It was a beautiful morning. As soon as Scotty got back, he would suggest a swim. In a short time, he looked up to see Scotty approaching from Whiteside. He watched critically as Scotty swung wide and banked into the approach over the lab building, then settled smoothly onto the grass. He nodded his approval. Scotty was a natural flyer. He excelled at anything requiring a high degree of coordination between body and mind. Rick walked to meet him. What kept you? Scotty climbed out and staked the plane down. Jerry picked me up on the way to the airport. We talked for a while. He had the film and he was taken to New York. Both of them walked with less spring in their steps than usual. Knowing that nothing was in sight but waiting was a letdown after the activity of the pre-dawn hours. But Captain Douglas had spoken, and that was that. I wonder if we'll ever be able to prove that the Kelsos wrecked the sea bell, Rick mused. Even if the police catch them cold on a smuggling charge, that won't necessarily tie them up with Captain Tyler. That's right. Scotty bent and plucked a sprig of mint from the patch next to the house. He chewed it absently. But we'll be able to show method and motive, and once they're in jail, Tyler can talk and with Captain Killian's evidence, that'll clear Tyler anyway. Why should we worry about whether the Kelsos get caught for that as long as he's cleared? We'll have them on the smuggling charge. I guess so. Rick felt tired. How about a quick swim? Then we can crawl into bed and take a nap. That's a good idea. What are we waiting for? The water was too good to abandon after a few quick dips, and they alternately swam and lazed in the sun until lunchtime. Only after a good lunch of several sandwiches and almost a quart of milk apiece did they feel like taking a nap. Then Rick said, No word. I guess that does it. Either Brad is ignoring our flying over him, or he's dumped the cargo. I'd like to know which. Otherwise, he would have put into Creek House a long time ago. Looks that way. But I'm too drowsy to care. Go on to bed and let me do likewise. We'll know soon enough what happened. Rick undressed, drew his shades, and crawled in luxuriating in the comfort of cool sheets. But it wasn't easy to drop off to sleep. His active mind persisted on going over and over the events at Seaford like a record stuck in a groove. But after a while, he slept. Rick didn't even hear the phone ring when it did. Scotty had to wake him up. Then drowsily, he and Scotty went down the hall. It's Mr. Barrows," Mrs. Brant called from below. I'll take it, Rick said. He picked up the phone. This is Rick, Duke. Bad news, the editor said. It's all over. Nothing came out of it. Rick woke up sharply. What? But, Duke, we saw them load. Tough luck. Brad came in as usual, and Douglas was waiting for him. They went over that ship from stem to stern and didn't turn up a single thing. Rick realized it was dark outside. Mother had let them sleep right through dinner. But the crate's in the marsh. How about those? Gone. There wasn't a thing but flattened reeds and muddy water there, responded Duke. Scotty had been holding his ear close to the phone. Brad must have jettisoned the cargo. We didn't think he would. Duke heard him. Was that Scotty? Well, Rick, if the pictures prove out, we'll know he must have thrown the stuff overboard. Captain Douglas has faith in you. He says don't be discouraged. Thanks, Rick said hollowly. Oh, one other item of news. I talked with the agent who rented the creek house to the Kelsos. They've given him notice that they're moving out next Saturday. What do you think about that? Rick's shoulders slumped. Unless they try to pull something between now and then, we're sunk. Duke, do you realize this may have been their last load? We might have scared them off with flying over Brad and then having the police raid them. Afraid so. But Captain Douglas says they seem pretty smug. They may try it again. By the way, Jerry says the film will be ready at five tomorrow night. I'll send him to New York early tomorrow and he can do a few errands for me Then pick up the film on his way home. Thanks, Duke, Rick said. He replaced the receiver and looked at Scotty. Did you get all that? Scotty nodded silently. Mrs. Brant called from downstairs. I saved dinner for you boys. Want to come down to get it? Right away, Mom. Thanks, Rick called. He and Scotty slipped robes over their pajamas and walked slowly down the stairs. Neither of them felt much like eating after the phone call. They had, with undue optimism written the case off as practically closed. But now, everything seemed as far from a solution as ever. Chapter 18 Brendan's Marsh Rick stared out the window at the gathering dusk. "'I'd like to know what's taken Jerry so long with those pictures,' he grumbled. "'He should have been here an hour ago.' "'Scotty had been trying to read a book.' He gave it up as a bad job and joined Rick at the window. Maybe he stopped for dinner. I'll put ground glass in his cake next time he comes to dinner if he has, Rick threatened. Jerry had phoned before leaving New York earlier in the day. After consultation with Duke, they had agreed that Jerry would bring the pictures directly to the island and that Rick and Scotty would leave the boat at the landing for him to use. The editor was as anxious as any of them to see the pictures, but as he pointed out, there was no longer any special haste, and he preferred not to have both himself and Jerry away from the paper at the same time, especially in the very early or very late evening when the wire service newscasts were coming in. Rick had agreed. He planned to project the film, choose single frames that would be the most useful, re-photograph them, and make enlargements for Duke and Captain Douglas. The re was done with a special, inexpensive device that could be purchased at any photo supply store. Scotty opened the window wider and stuck his head out. Thought I heard something. Rick looked at his watch. It was shortly after eight. Let's take the glasses and walk out to the north side. It won't be completely dark until around nine. We'll be able to see him coming. Wait a minute. There. Scotty held up his hand. I thought I heard something. I recognize that sound. It's the launch motor. Rick started for the door and then hesitated. You go meet him. I'll get the projector set up in the library. He ran downstairs and called. Mom, Dad, Jerry's coming with the pictures. And then he hurried into the library, took his folding screen from the closet and set it up. He got the projector from its case and plugged it in using his father's desk as a table and put on the take-up reel. He finished focusing just as Scotty and Jerry burst into the room. Mr. and Mrs. Brant were just behind them. I got a clogged gas line, Jerry explained breathlessly. Finally got a man to push me to the nearest gas station. We took the gas line off at of the carburetor and blew it out with compressed air. I didn't dare take time to find out what had clogged it because I knew you'd lynch me. You're forgiven, Rick said. He had already taken the film from Jerry and was threading it through the projector gate. He inserted the loose end "'in the take-up reel and motion to Scotty. "'Here we go.' "'Scotty snapped out the light, "'and Rick started the projector. "'White Leader ran through the gate, "'then suddenly, clear as day, "'there were two ships below, "'their center sections brightly illuminated, "'and the rest fading out slightly "'toward what had been the edges "'of the infrared beam. "'Excellent, Rick,' Hartson Brandt said. "'Good work, son. "'That's much better than I would have hoped.' same here dad rick said eyes on the screen the ships appeared to be whirling slowly the result of his having taken the picture while circling in a tight bank he could see the men on the decks clearly and even thought he recognized brad Marbeck. then as the angle changed he saw Marbeck clearly waving his arm what flag is that scotty asked suddenly there on the stern of the freighter." The flag was limp because there had been no breeze to speak of, but part of the design was clear. I've got it, Hartson Brandt exclaimed. That ship is of Caribbean registry. He named the country and then said, Look for the name of the ship. But the angle was all wrong for that. The name was not within the camera's view on either stern or bow. The film was running out rapidly now, Rick watched the cargo net swing over, full of wooden cases and drop on the deck of the freighter. For a moment, it didn't register, and then he yelled, Hey! Oh my gosh, did you see that? He threw the reverse switch, and the film ran backwards. The net lifted from the deck of the freighter and swung toward the albatross. Then he ran it forward again and watched the load settle to the freighter's deck. Scotty yelled, too. What a pair of chuckleheads! Rick, no wonder we didn't find anything on the Albatross. And neither did Captain Douglas. They're smuggling stuff out, not in. The Plimsor Mark. The Albatross had been heavily loaded because Brad Marbeck had taken on the load at Creek House he would later deliver to the freighter. That was why no ships had been listed in the New York paper as being in the right area at the right time. They had looked for arrival times, not departure times. That was why the cache of cases was no longer in the marsh behind Creek House. These pictures were of those cases being loaded onto the freighter. The picture ran through and a white light flashed on the screen. Scotty snapped the lights on. We've got to get these pictures to Captain Douglas, Rick exclaimed. I'll hurry and rephotograph them right away. It'll only take a minute. He hastily rewound the film, while Scotty ran ahead to the photo lab. Hartson Brandt said, Ed will be glad to get those, Rick, but don't get your hopes up too high. The pictures don't show any contraband in those cases. That's what you're going to need. I know, Dad, but at least we know now why we've always been wrong. We were backwards. He hurriedly excused himself, and he and Jerry hurried after Scotty. Scotty already had loaded the rephotographing camera with film and screwed a photo flood bulb into a convenient receptacle. It took Rick only ten minutes to select the frames he wanted to rephotograph and finish the operation. Then he gave the rephotographing camera to Scotty, who wound the film all the way through and took it out. Well, let's develop it, he said, and reached for the shelf to take down a small developing tank. Wait, an idea struck Rick. How do we know Brad isn't going to load again tonight? Remember the Kelsos have only a few more days at Creek House. Jerry snapped his fingers. That's right. And I'll bet they're gloating over Hoodwink and the state police, too. They wouldn't be afraid to ship out another load, particularly since they know they're suspected of smuggling stuff in. It might be their last chance. We can't risk it, Rick said decisively. We'll take this film to Whiteside and have the photographer of the paper develop it how about it jerry the reporter nodded in agreement and continued while that's being developed we can go through the new york papers again and find out if a ship of caribbean registry is sailing about midnight would be right for a departure time right scotty reached for the light he snapped it out and led the way through the door he and jerry went directly to the boat landing while rick ran upstairs and picked up his infrared camera just in case if the police raided Creek House tonight, he intended to be on hand. Scotty had chosen the fast speedboat and already had the engine turning over. Rick jumped aboard and they roared toward Whiteside. At the dock, they transferred to Jerry's car and sped through the streets to the newspaper office. Duke Barrows had just finished with the early newscast and taking advantage of the lull had gone home for dinner. The photographer told them he would return in about an hour. He was the only man in the office right now. Rick gave him the roll of film on which Rick had rephotographed the critical scenes from the movie and asked for two enlargements of each. It's urgent, he said. Luke will want to see those when he gets back. He'll have em, the photographer headed for the darkroom. Rick and Scotty didn't wait any longer. They took the file of New York papers from the rack and hurriedly leafed through them to the proper dates. Here's one. Rick found a pencil and jotted down the name of the ship and its owner. The next date disclosed a ship of the same registry and owner, but with a different name. They worked rapidly and it took only a few minutes now that they knew what they were looking for, and presently they had the job completed. Jerry, who had been phoning Duke, joined them and looked over Rick's shoulder as he read aloud. All the same company and registry. It's the Campania Maritima Caribe E... Atalantica? He stumbled a little over the Spanish name. This was good evidence. He looked at his friend's eyes shining. Rick said, Now for today's paper. Do we have it, Jerry? The reporter found it on Duke's desk, and they spread it out on the table. Three heads bent over it. There was no ship of that company registry listed as sailing tonight. Then Scotty spotted a separate listing of ships now loading. Got one but it's scheduled to sail night after tomorrow. And look, it's the same ship that was here two weeks ago. Rick sat down at Jerry's desk. He still couldn't escape the feeling of urgency. He had played his hunches before, and he did so now. He leaned over and picked up a copy of the New York phone directory. With the others watching curiously, he leafed through it, found the right page, and ran his finger down until he had the number. Then he picked up Jerry's phone and called. While the operator made the connection, he held his hand over the mouthpiece. It's a hunch. The shipping offices are closed now, but the port director at New York will know. A female voice said, Port of New York Authority? I need information on ship sailings, please, Rick requested. The operator rang an extension and a male voice answered. I know you don't usually bother with information of this kind, Rick said. But this is the Whiteside morning record, and we need it for tomorrow's edition. I'd like to know if there's any correction on the sailing date of this ship. He read off the name and company and pier number. Just a minute, Whiteside. I'll be glad to look it up. Rick waited tensely. Here it is. The ship was supposed to sail Friday night, but the sailing has been moved up. She leaves tonight at midnight. Thanks, Rick said. He hung up and turned to his friends. "'Tonight's the night. I had a hunch something was up. Of course Brad and the Kelsos would have the sailing moved up, because they're frightened. I'll bet tonight will be their last load. Then the Kelsos will clear out, and Brad will just go back to fishing.' Tonight or never,' Scotty echoed. "'What do we do now?' "'Call Captain Douglas.' Rick picked up the phone again, and asked for the state police headquarters." There was a little delay while the officer was called to the phone. Then Rick quickly outlined their findings from the movie film and the New York paper. "'If we get down there, we could catch them in the act of loading,' he said. "'How about it, Captain?' Captain Douglas hesitated. "'I hate to stick out my neck again after last night, but this looks like a sure thing. We'll need a search warrant, Rick, and it'll take a little time to rout out a judge.' and I'll have to see the pictures first. We have to show cause when we get a warrant, you know, and the judge will be a little reluctant after last night. The pictures are being printed now, Rick told him. You can have them in a little while. Right. I'll round up the men I need and bring them with me, and I'll get the judge on the phone and ask him to make out the warrant and promise to show him the evidence when I pick it up. How long will that take? We will be on our way in an hour. I'll get going right now. The captain hung up. Rick looked at his watch and then at the rapidly fading light outside. They won't be in time, he said desperately. If they rush the loading, they can have the albatross out of there. And then what happens? They'll have to get another warrant to search the trawler at the pier, and there won't be any evidence to tie the cargo up to the Kelsos. Scotty held up the infrared camera. Unless we get it, he said. Rick's eyes widened. Go back to Creek House? But even as he shuddered at the thought of what would happen to them if they were caught again, he knew there was no other way. Jerry, he said crisply, we're going on ahead. Run us down to the dock and we'll get started. Then you come back and wait for Captain Douglas and Duke. Give them the pictures and this dope from the shipping news. And for the love of Rick and Scotty, tell them to step on it when they start for Seaford. Jerry protested half-heartedly as they sped to the dock, but they convinced him it would be better for him to wait and impress on the others the need for speed. He dropped them at the speedboat with a plea to be careful and then headed back to the office. Scotty got behind the wheel while Rick cast off, and they roared out to sea with the throttle wide open. The speedboat climbed to the step and planed along like a racer, leaving a foaming wake. Then, as they passed Spindrift Island and met rougher water, it began to bounce from one wave crest to the next. Spray swirled over the windshield and into the boat. Scotty started the wipers. Rick crouched down into the dashboard and rechecked his camera trying out the infrared dynamo and the camera motor. Just to be on the safe side, he brought the camera case which contained extra film and a tripod. Now he got the tripod ready, but waited to see what would happen before he placed the camera on it. He sat back in the seat, satisfied that everything was in readiness, and looked around. Suddenly he stiffened. There were ship-running lights on the horizon. The trawler fleet was returning to Seaford, and Brad Marbeck would be among them. He leaned over and switched out their own running lights. Scotty glanced around and saw the masthead lights and nodded his understanding. Better make a plan,' he suggested. "'What do we do when we get there?' "'Stick our heads into the lion's mouth,' Rick replied unhappily. "'I hate to try getting into the creek house grounds again after last time. "'Do we have to? "'I mean, can't we watch from the boat?' We couldn't get near enough without being seen. Hey, wait. We could at that. Rick struggled to remember details of the photo they had taken, showing the marsh opposite Creek House. We could go into the marsh. Remember that inlet nearest the creek? That branched off in the right direction. There are emergency oars in this thing. We could use them as poles and shove our way in. We might be able to get close enough. And if we don't, we can wade the rest of the way, Scotty leaned over and wiped mist from the windshield. It's a fine idea, he laughed without mirth. Pratt and those two redheads would have a fine time chasing us through the swamp. Here's one pigeon they never catch. Make that two pigeons, Rick corrected. They were making good time, even though the slapping of the speedboat over the rough water was giving them a bad jolting. They roared past the last group of summer cottages before Brendan's marsh, leaving a wake that set the boats anchored near the shore to rocking. At Rick's suggestion, Scotty throttled down as they swept along the edge of the marsh. The noise of the wide-open engine might be heard at Creek House and aroused suspicion. Then, as smugglers' light neared, and they knew they were getting close, Scotty throttled down still more. Rick unlashed the pair of oars from their position along the gunwale and got them ready. It was fully dark now and difficult to see, although the moon was rising. Scotty leaned over and cut the ignition. "'Don't dare use the engine any nearer than this,' he said, voice low. Rick saw that they were perilously near the creek mouth. He turned to look at incoming trawlers and saw the nearest one, almost a beam of them, a quarter of a mile out. Watch for that inlet, he whispered, and let's get into the next seat back. The windshield will interfere if we try to paddle from here. He hadn't rigged the oarlocks, knowing they'd be unable to row in the narrow inlet. They would have to use the oars as paddles. They climbed over the seat back and each took an oar, kneeling like canoeists. Rick was on the inland side, and he saw the inlet mouth first. There, he whispered and backed water with his oar. The bow of the boat swung around. Rushes and marsh grass scraped past them. The lights of Creek House were still invisible. Rick strained his eyes to see. It was almost inky black in the tall rushes. Then Scotty reached out and felt with his oar. Left turn, he whispered. He had found the inlet branch that led toward the hotel. Now he backed water, trying not to splash, while Rick pulled ahead. The boat swung into the narrow channel, reeds touching it on both sides, making a hissing noise as they progressed. "'Only a few feet of water,' Rick said softly, "'and mud at the bottom.' Each time he lifted his oar, he felt the weight of a ball of muck on the end. The boat slid gently to a stop. Both young men put their weight on the oars but it moved only two feet ahead, then stopped once more. They put their heads together and discussed it in a low whisper, because they were near the creek. "'We're aground,' Scotty said. "'Guess we get out and walk,' Rick returned. "'Better take our shoes and socks off. It's going to be muddy. "'Yeah, we'll be lucky if we don't sink up to our necks in mud.' Scotty took his arm suddenly. Rick started to ask what was the matter, and then he heard it. The cough of a diesel engine exhaust, and the clanking of gear, told him that a ship was nearing. A shiver ran through him. Brad Marbeck was coming in to load. "'Come on, let's step on it,' he whispered. He sat down and removed his shoes and socks, and then climbed up on the gunwale, and walked forward, brushing against the rushes, but trying not to make too much noise. He took his oar and shoved it straight down from the bow. There was about a foot of water, then another 18 inches of mud before the bottom firmed. It will be hard going. He started back, but Scotty came to meet him, carrying the camera and the power pack. The tripod, Rick requested in a low whisper. If the ground is so soft, I can't get a firm stance. We're going to need the tripod. Scotty handed him the equipment and then went back and got the tripod. Rick screwed the camera into place with a few turns of the tripod nut. Scotty disconnected the power cord that led from the power pack to the camera and coiled it up. They could reconnect it when they needed it. Meanwhile, it would interfere with their progress. He slung the power pack over his shoulder. Rick put the camera and tripod on the deck, then turned his back to the creek and lowered himself. The water was cold and the muck seemed to reach up for him. He felt firmer ground under his toes and let himself go, then held his hands within reach of the boat as he continued to sink. He was up to his thighs when the ground finally held. He reached up and took the camera, holding it high in the air, and started forward. Each step was an effort. He had to lift his leg high before each step, and the mud clung. Behind him he heard the sucking, splashing of Scotty's progress. Then the ground began to get firmer, until at last there was only a thin film of water and about a foot of mud. The lights of Creek House could be seen through the rushes now. He held up his hand as a warning to Scotty. They were close to the bank. In a moment he parted the reeds and looked through. Scotty moved to his side. The albatross was tying up at Creek House Pier and Brad Marbeck was just leaping to the dock where the Kelsos waited. But the boys were too far down the creek mouth. They would have to move along the bank. Rick gave Scotty a little push in that direction, and Scotty understood. He went back into the marsh a few feet, and then led the way. It was easier going, but still far from pleasant. The muck gave every step a slurping sound, and it clung in gobs. Then the vantage point Scotty selected, was reached, directly opposite the pier. They parted the rushes slightly and looked out. The crew of the albatross was climbing down under the pier. As the boys watched, they pulled out a shallow draft, broad-beamed rowboat, about fifteen feet long. It was the barge on which the contraband had waited in the swamp. Rick put his lips to Scotty's ear. I wonder why Captain Douglas didn't see that he probably did it didn't mean anything with the cargo gone that was sensible rick thought there would have been no occasion for the captain to mention it he searched for a bit of firmer ground on which to rest the camera and found it he began to worry about the hum of the dynamo would that be heard when they turned it on and the filament of the infrared searchlight would be visible too against the dark background of the marsh did they dare to try it The crew of the albatross was in the flatboat. It scarcely could be called a rowboat, already heading upstream. The Kelsos and Marbeck walked toward the house. Good. That would give them a chance to try the camera. Rick waited impatiently until the boat rounded the turn leading to Salt Creek Bridge. Then he sighted in on the albatross, checked his settings, and started both the camera and the infrared light. The dynamo and camera motor hummed quietly. He breathed a sigh of relief. Surely that much sound would blend imperceptibly with the normal night sounds. Peepers in the fresher water upstream made more noise than that. He walked ahead of the camera and peered into the infrared searchlight. If anyone looked really closely, they might see it. He hoped the men on the opposite shore would be too busy to glance his way. He switched off the mechanism and settled down to wait, His trousers were wet and heavy with mud, and his legs and feet were chilled. Mosquitoes whined around his head, and little Nat settled down for a meal on his exposed neck and head. He began to wonder if it was worth it. Carrots Kelso came out of the house and had his rifle. The boys watched as he disappeared behind the hotel, taking up his position as guard. Each minute had lead in its shoes. Why didn't the boat return? There. Suddenly it was rounding the bend. Rick moved behind the camera and loosened the pan head. He swung the lens upstream. Scotty parted the rushes for him and he began to shoot. Infrared illuminated the bulk clearly. He saw the faces of the crew and saw the cases, stacked from stem to stern, and even read their labels. Hummer sewing machines. He didn't believe for a moment that there were really sewing machines in there, but he couldn't guess their actual contents. He stopped shooting and rewound the camera while Scotty cranked the dynamo spring. Then he took another brief sequence, stopped, and waited. No more now until they actually reached the dock and started to transfer the stuff. Red Kelso and Brad Marbeck came out of the hotel, and he started shooting again. Then he switched to a telephoto lens and took a close-up of their faces as they watched the boat draw near carrots appeared around the front of the hotel and rick got him too before he vanished again patrolling the grounds the boat touched the dock a crewman leapt to the place where kelso and marbek stood there was conversation with much gesturing and pointing into the boat then the crewman jumped down again and motioned to one of his fellows rick started shooting Clearly, as though it were day, he saw the two bend over something in the bow. They heaved upright, and a chill shot through him. It was a man, and he was bound and gagged. Then they turned the man over to hand him up to the dock, and Rick's teeth clamped on his lips so hard that he groaned. It was Jerry Webster.